Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. If there's one part of Christianity that I think seems to rub people up the wrong way, it's the idea that God is going to judge People today don't seem to like that idea. The mood of our society today is that the individual is boss. Everyone gets to decide for themselves how they want to live, right or wrong. Well, that's really just a matter of personal preference. There's a common expression that you hear today. People will say, well, who are you to judge? And I'm guessing you've probably heard that. Who are you to judge when it comes to issues of lifestyle or ethics or morality or sex and sexuality? Our society is happy for Christians to run soup kitchens and help the needy, but a little bit less happy when we talk about the idea of God judging. Christians are encouraged to keep that bit to themselves. And it's not just a matter of who are you to judge. People today would say, who is God to judge? But the fact is the Bible talks pretty regularly about the idea of judgment, and it's what we're going to see in this passage from Matthew today. The king has come, as we saw last week, he has come to save, but a part of his coming is about judgment. So we began last week with Matthew chapter 1 and 2, we saw that Jesus 
is the king that God had promised to send, the son of Abraham and the son of David. And in chapter 2, we saw that Jesus was born, and even before he was able to utter a word, before he was old enough to do anything, he's managed to divide people. There are the wise men who are lining up to worship Jesus, while Herod, on the other hand, is attempting to kill Jesus. The family fled to Egypt where they lived for the next few years and then at the end of chapter 2, they returned to live in Nazareth, which is where Jesus will grow up. And when we open to chapter 3, we jump ahead kind of 25 years, I suppose, and the passage begins not by talking about Jesus, but by talking about John, John the Baptist. A famous conductor, Leonard Bernstein, was once asked, what's the hardest position to fill in the orchestra. And he thought about it for a moment and he said, second violin. And he said, it's not difficult to find someone who wants to be first violin, but it's really hard to find someone to play second violin and to do that enthusiastically. Well, can I say, John the Baptist was perfectly happy to be second violin and to do that enthusiastically. He knew what his role was. The role wasn't to put the spotlight on himself. John's role was to put the spotlight on Jesus. If you've got your Bible open, have a look at how it starts. Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Kind of sounds like a Channel 9 news reporter, doesn't it? Describing the, uh, the dress of the people as they're making their way along the red carpet. That's not what that's about. There is special mention made of what he's wearing. See, people back in Jesus' day, and particularly Matthew's readers, from a Jewish background... They, as soon as they heard that, camel hair and leather belt, they know what that's about. They know who that is. God had promised that before the Saviour came, Elijah would come. And he would come to prepare the way for God's Saviour, for God's King. The very last book of the Old Testament, the very closing words of that book, uh, Malachi, or the only Italian prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi is what some people call him. Malachi chapter 4 says this, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And how does Elijah get described in the pages of the Old Testament? Well, you go back to two kings and he's described as being a man with a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. So when people read that John the Baptist has come with this garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist, well, they know exactly what this is all about. This is Elijah who's come to prepare the way. This is the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, as I said, Matthew's readers, they would have got that easily. They wouldn't have had to think about that. They wouldn't have needed to Google that one to figure that out. They knew exactly what that was talking about. And when that passage from Isaiah gets quoted, they wouldn't have just known those words. They would have known the whole setting for that passage as well. 
See, there's that little quote there in Matthew about preparing the way. There's a voice of one calling in the desert. This is where it comes from, from Isaiah chapter 40. And let me read you the whole chat, or the whole section to give you the full picture. It says this. Comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and to proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God announced this while people were still in exile in Babylon. Their 70 years of slavery in Babylon has now come to an end. They will return to the land and when they do, God's glory will be revealed. God himself will come to rescue them. God has promised that he would come. So do you see what all of this means? Put all of those pieces together. John is the voice in the desert. John is announcing that God is about to come. And John is calling for the people to get ready. God is coming to rescue his people. God's glory is about to be revealed. God's kingdom is now here. So people need to be ready. They told there in verse two what Matthew, uh, what John's message is. It's a simple one, two-part message. Repent, the kingdom is near. They are to repent. They are to turn around from the way that they're living. That's the best way to understand that word, repent. It's kind of a, it has religious connotations to it now, but it's a really simple word that means turn around from the way that you're already going. So if you're heading down a one-way street, as soon as you realise that you're heading in the wrong direction, you repent. You turn around. You go the right direction. You start driving the way that you should be. First thing you do is you realise you're heading in the wrong direction. The second thing you do is you turn your car around and start heading in the right direction. And that's what John's calling people to do. God is coming. People need to repent. They need to head in the right direction. But the second part of the message is that the kingdom has drawn near. There is an urgency now about this message. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The king has come to establish the kingdom. If you want to be a part of the kingdom, you need to get ready and be ready to follow the king. John's preaching and his baptism was obviously making a big impact on the community where he was living Uh, There were large crowds of people coming out to hear what he has to say and then to get themselves baptised to to repent, to turn around from the way that they're living and to be ready for the king when he comes. So many people were coming that the religious leaders wanted to go out and just figure out what all of this was about, see what it was that was happening. But when the Pharisees and the Sadducees arrive, John's kind of less than impressed to see them. Did you see it there in verse number 7? They haven't come to be baptised. They haven't come to repent. 
They haven't come to turn their hearts towards God. And look at what John says to them. When he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said, You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. They're pretty stinging words, aren't they? And this to the religious leaders of the day. Here are a bunch of people who think that they don't need to repent. If you're heading to the dentist, I'm sure you've had this experience, that you want to make sure that your teeth are as clean as possible, don't you? I mean, you're going to brush them quite a few times just before that visit, just to make sure they're as good as they can possibly be. Or if you're going to go and get your hair cut, uh, you make sure that you've washed your hair. If someone's going to be touching your hair and cutting it for you, you want to be sure that it's as clean and knit-free as possible, don't you? I mean, really... You don't want someone touching that and thinking, oh, goodness me. Now, if I do that for the dentist and I do it for the hairdresser, how much more should I be prepared to face God? John is announcing that God is coming. And if God is coming, it's not just a matter of making sure that your teeth are brushed and your hair's clean. This is serious. That if you want to be ready to face God, you need to be prepared. Pharisees and Sadducees think that they're ready. And do you know why they think they're ready? Because they're Pharisees and Sadducees. They think that because they're religious leaders, surely that's got to be enough. Descendants of Abraham. And John says, no, that is not what counts. Now, can I say, the problem back then, it's the same as the problem that we have today. It's this ever-present danger of organised religion. It can lull you into a false sense of security. What happened with the Pharisees can just as easily happen to people today. People can become comfortable because they're just sort of immersed enough within their own tradition. But that's not what God wants. I can't tell you how many times I've asked someone, so how did you become a Christian? And their answer begins by, oh, well, I was baptised in a Presbyterian church. Or I've always been a Presbyterian. Or I got married in a Presbyterian church. Now, well, those are all wonderful things, don't get me wrong. But that wasn't the question that I asked. People can sometimes become so comfortable in their own denomination, they think that they've clearly done what God would want them to do. And I don't care which denomination it is. Presbyterian, Baptist, Anglican, Catholic, you name it. They'll all do exactly the same thing. Or have the potential to do the same thing. Of lull you into thinking... You've done everything that God could possibly expect from you. They all have that same inherent danger. People can think that because they got christened or baptised or confirmed or became a voting member or give regularly or they became an elder or a deacon in the church, they're lulled into thinking that that's all that God wants from them. But what God wants is people who repent, people who turn to him with their whole heart, God wants people who follow his king. And how do you know if you've done what God wants you to do? How do you know if you have a genuine faith? Well, it's exactly what John says to the Pharisees. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
You can know that you have a genuine faith because if you repent, there will be fruit in your life. Other people will be able to see that fruit. Now, don't misunderstand what John's saying here. He's not saying you just have to do enough good things and that then surely God will be impressed. No, he's saying that if you have genuinely repented, if you have turned your heart toward God, if you have placed your trust in Jesus, the fruit will be there in your life. Your life should look like you've turned to God. Your life should look like you're serious about following Jesus. The fruit will be there. In verse 17, Jesus arrives on the scene. The king moves to centre stage and he arrives to be baptised by John. And John is a little confused about why Jesus wants him to baptise him. And I'm pleased that John's confused by this because I'm a little bit confused by it as well. I mean, it seems really weird. Jesus has got nothing to repent of. I mean, there's no sin to confess. He didn't need to turn his heart towards God He is God, for goodness sake. But I think he's doing it for a few reasons. He's identifying with those that he came to save. And he's demonstrating to those around him that he is completely devoted to serving God. And then look at what we read when Jesus comes up after his baptism. Verse number 16. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven opened... And he saw the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. God's voice comes from heaven confirming that this is God's son, confirming that this is the one who has come to save. God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit announcing the king's arrival. But I still think one of the things that stands out in this passage today is all the judgment talk that's there. It's amazing with that passage from Malachi because it says that it will be the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The great and dreadful day of the Lord. But have a look in Matthew chapter 3, the passages that point to the judgment. Verse 7, he says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? And then again in verse 10, he says, the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And about Jesus, John says this in verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, he's clearing the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's tough judgment language, isn't it? I don't know about you, but it doesn't make me feel comfortable. The coming of the kingdom and the coming of the king is great and dreadful news message of hope for the wheat, but a message of judgment for the chaff. Message of hope for the fruitful trees, but a message of judgment for those that aren't bearing fruit. God's kingdom coming means that there are choices to be made and that there are consequences with those choices. You can choose to repent and acknowledge Jesus as king, 
or you can choose to remain outside of the kingdom and continue to think that you are the king of your life. You can repent and produce fruit in keeping with repentance or you can live your life however you please. The message about Jesus continues to be good and bad news today because it's a message that continues to have choices and consequences with those choices. For those who accept the good news and for those who reject it. This is how Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes the message in 2 Corinthians. He says, For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. God has set the day when he will judge this world and the judgment really just hinges around one person, Jesus. The idea of judgment, the older I get, the less comfortable I am with the idea. I don't like it. But I can't avoid it. And Paul says that we have this message that is the fragrance of life, a message of eternal life in Jesus. And that should make us all the more committed to telling people that message.